welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 33, Jesus makes this uh, statement. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Jesus. Um, As we open, uh, once again, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Some real practical material. Not the easiest material, but some very practical material as, as we had last week as well. Our, bro- uh, our Lord's brother, James, stated in his second chapter that few things wield as much influence as the tongue. Like a ship is turned uh, by a very small rudder, the tongue being a very small uh, member of our body, uh, it boasts of great things, mighty things. Of course, we know that James there is using the tongue as a metaphor uh, to describe uh, the relationship of the tongue and and spoken words, that that influence that words have. Uh, Boy, words have the power to build up or to destroy And James also portrays our speech as arising from a deep source within us. He asks, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Therefore, as we turn our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 10, uh, we already know that Scripture often makes the connection between a type of speech and a type of person. Jesus did so earlier, uh, just a few minutes ago during our scripture reading in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, where he said, "Either uh, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. The fruit will be good or bad according to the type of tree. Jesus therefore concludes, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. On another occasion in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 18, he tells his disciples, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart... Come evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, 
slanders, these are the things which defile the man. Jesus, again, uh, points to the heart. He states that words that are spoken come straight out of the heart. And the heart, in Hebrew thought, equates to the mind, to the source of thinking. Uh, The heart serves as both an indication and a source of what we think. What our inner heart thinks eventually charts its passage and finds a way out through our mouth in the form of verbal speech. But the news is not as dreadful as it may first appear or as hopeless. Though words may indicate something bad about the condition of our hearts, thankfully, Scripture assures they can also produce good. Good can come from a regenerated heart and mind, and our passage today will help us to understand that wisdom knows what to say, what not to say, and when to say nothing at all. When we should say nothing at all. Reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. Well, I think we can just take a moment. Just to breathe in that fresh air right there, all right? People who are wise are verbally gracious. Scripture is going to have a lot more to say about this today, uh, but just take a moment to ponder how when we arrive in heaven before our Lord Jesus, then that presence of sin is finally removed. All speech that our ears hear is going to be pure. Full of grace. Why long for that day? And this knowledge of a future hope, it can only be enjoyed by a Christian. But the spirit of Christians can practice this today as well. Proverbs 22, verse 11. Listen to this. This is good. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. Jesus is our king and he rules over our hearts. And scripture assures there will come a day when he will remove every lingering unclean thing from within us. Folks, this is a promise unbelievers cannot enjoy. When the prophet Isaiah was given a vision of the glorious throne of God, he stated, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And though Isaiah believed in the Lord God Yahweh, Isaiah was troubled by a debilitating feature in his heart. Lingered in his heart and therefore became manifest in his speech. You know, when Isaiah said, I have unclean lips, he's confessing a problem with his heart. I can only imagine he he marveled at the purity of speech made by the angelic creatures who surrounded the Lord God, exalted on high, 
singing much like we did earlier. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In heaven, all of our speech will be gracious. That is a fantastic promise that can be realized today. Yet we dwell in sinful flesh, and often our words remain contaminated. Therefore, we receive this valuable reminder to be wise, beginning in verse 12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talk is folly, and the end of it is wickedness, wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence the rafters sag, and through slackness the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Wow. Before we get off into the rough and tumble, just a few more words about words that are gracious. The term for grace, consistently, it, it offers favor that is unmerited. It is unearned. It is undeserved. A wise man extends words that are gracious to others. Unearned blessing when it's unearned. Uh, Solomon is not here describing words that are exchanged for service. The first half of verse 10, therefore, does not indicate speech that will enable us to gain something in return from other people, namely their favor. Rather, this is favor that we dispense to other people, namely the gracious gift of God. So if you have an English Standard Version, you can draw a line right through that phrase that says, win him favor, which makes the the phrase appear selfish, uh, and circle the tiny little footnote right next to it, and then draw a line down to the bottom of your page if you follow that footnote, and that correctly indicates that the wise man's words are literally, they are gracious. They are gracious. They don't win him favor. They are gracious. Um, They grant favor. The wise man's word grant favor. Philip Riken offers this comment on verse 10, adding his wise words. He states, When a wise person speaks to other people, he or she uses more words of encouragement than criticism. 
Usually the way to bring out the best in other people is not by finding fault, but by building them up. Instead of boasting, the wise person uses words to make other people look good. Folks, that describes being gracious. Being gracious. These words, they are not spoken to gain their own advantage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4 correctly states, Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act becomingly. It does not seek its own. This wisdom should help us and our hearts to think rightly. A man or woman who truly speaks words of grace does not, in the process, seek their own advantage. They do not butter people up only to win them over to their side. They are not trying to offer an appearance of holiness to enhance their own reputation. Words that are truly gracious do not seek their own favor, but bestow divine blessing to others. Isn't that something? Amazing. In other words, Christians do not become crafty politicians. You know, virtually everything that a politician says publicly has to be shaped. It has to be fashioned, uh, and it's always inclined to bring some sort of favor or advantage to him or to her. We don't train disciples to become wordsmithers who selfishly elevate themselves. We are taught by Jesus to generously build others up by dispensing grace for their well-being. Boy, is that wise or what? This is when, when we do this, this is when we most look like our Father who is in heaven, dispensing grace to others. Meanwhile, back in verse 12, the fool acts quite differently. The King James correctly places the word but in between the wise man and the fool to amplify an obvious and direct contrast because it says the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly and the end of it, literally, the end of his mouth is wicked madness. The end of his mouth is wicked madness. Verse 13 assures that his speech is not gracious but self-aggrandizing from beginning to end, from start to finish, and it digresses as it goes on into mischievous madness. Madness. Boy, Solomon doesn't tend to sugarcoat, does he? But it's very helpful. It's very helpful. The fool's words will eventually consume him and even swallow him up whole, Yet still, verse 14 says, the fool multiplies words. Well, what kind of words, you ask? 
A fool multiplies words of boasting. Solomon says, even though, verse 14, no man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him, uh, this is reflective again to our Lord's brother James in his epistle who said, Come now, you who say, tomorrow, uh, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This is the guy who doesn't realize or recognize he's a vapor. If you're with us when we were at the introduction to Ecclesiastes, um, Solomon said, O vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And during that introduction, we learned that in Ecclesiastes, the Hebrew word vanity means breath or vapor. A man's life is a breath. That's all it is. It's quite possible that James had Ecclesiastes in mind when he wrote uh, this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. We, ha- we have no idea what tomorrow holds. No idea at all. Yet although no man knows what will happen, the fool boasts of tomorrow with many words. One more quote from Riken. He states, Quote, Fools are usually quite opinionated and they tend to be big talkers. Uh, for some reason, a fool is seldom content to keep his folly to himself, but insists on sharing it with others. Words multiply, fools go on and on, even when they do not know what they are talking about. Plato once said, Wise men speak because they have something to say, fools because they have to say something. Unquote. Well, James concludes in his epistle, chapter 4 and verse 15, in this way, he says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's evil. Therefore, in complete contrast to the wise man whose words are gracious to edify and build up those who are around him, the fool is hopelessly conceited. His favorite subject is himself and what he has done and what he's going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next. He declares to others that he has found his way. Yet verse 15 exposes how he is utterly lost. There we read, The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Well, this is where the, verse, the passage gets more fascinating, folks. Michael Eaton makes this comment, Any form of toil the fool finds wearisome. Suggests the fool doesn't want to work. We'll find out in the following verses. Uh, It's a result of indolence. Has no passion for work, doesn't want anything to do with it. Uh, verse, um, Verse 15. 
speaks about how toil just wearies him. It's so true. Uh, Fools prefer to talk rather than work. So this guy serves as the epitome of a sluggard. Doesn't mean that he isn't successful in the eyes of the world or wealthy, uh, he or she, which we will see in the next verses. Instead, it means that he or she has formed an aversion to work. They're always trying to find a way to get away from the toil that they find so wearisome. So wearisome. As examples, Solomon uses two kings. They're both royalty. They're both wealthy. They're not in the text differentiated by money or status. The difference that Solomon sees is one king remains ambitious to work, while the other's goal is to escape it entirely. Remember, he doesn't even know how to find his way to the city. That is an intentional exaggeration. It's emphasis. The Hebrew word there for city, it's not a town. It indicates a large, densely populated urban sprawl. You can't find the city. You probably all, all heard at one point or another the idiom, all roads lead to Rome. Yet this guy still can't find it. Do you know why that is? I think I know the reason. The king can't find his way. It's because he's foolishly delegated all of his responsibility to underlings. It's not uncommon. You'll see that today. Celebrities, uh, moguls, and and, uh, financial tycoons, those who have made it uh, uh, especially wealthy um, in their wealth, they will delegate everything to others. Just just try to uh, remove themselves from any kind of toil. And this king and his wealth has come to such a state of negligence. He now relies on everybody else to take care of his affairs and make his decisions for him. And he can't even find his way home anymore. Folks, he's detached from reality. He no longer wants to get up for work. He prefers to lounge all day. Uh, you may ask, where, where do I get that idea from? Well, it comes from verse 16. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. The lad isn't young. The king has become a man-child. He and his cohorts, they feast in the morning. Do you know what you're actually supposed to do in the morning? We'll get there in a minute. But let me just first state what we are not supposed to do in the morning. That is found in Proverbs 24, verse 16, which says, As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's weary of bringing it up to his mouth again. The same sluggard also says, also claims, There's a lion in the road! You've heard that proverb, right? There's a lion in the square. There's no lion in the road, folks. That's just the sluggard's fabricated excuse for not getting up and doing what he knows he should do every day. 
If you want some really good scriptural advice from Scripture, this, this complements last week. Here it is. Last week our lesson taught us to be diligent and take time to sharpen your axe before you begin work, remember? Today's lesson is get up each morning and go to work instead of just talking about work. The foolish king has grown irresponsibly complacent and no longer wants to work. You know, one of, one of the biggest fallacies of life, this, this ought to help all of us here. One of the biggest fallacies of life is this, that success is realized through becoming so rich, so wealthy, that you don't have to get up for work anymore. I want to lounge. I want to relax. I want my own island. I want people to come and serve me. I want, I want everything given to me. Folks, that, that does not describe success. That is not success. You don't have to reach that threshold in your life. Likely the amount of money you are making today, though we always want to improve in our life, likely what you're making is enough. Just get up every day as the Lord so allows to provide for you and your family. Be happy with what you have. Folks, to want to get to a point where you don't have to do anything, that's not success. That's sloth. It's symptomatic of a moral lapse and character flaw. There's no stopping work. You don't get finished with work. Man was created by God for work. The nature of our work may change as we age. Most of us will physically need to retire at some point. I'll be honest. If I'm in a third-story building with a fire, I don't want an 80-year-old fireman to come in and carry me down the stairs and out the front. There comes point where you don't do things the way that you did before. At some point, you may retire and become productive in other ways. But if he ever had one, this foolish king has lost all work ethic. He no longer rises each day to take care of business Instead, he delegates while he and his friends feast every morning. Uh, they're just lazy, and the kingdom's falling apart. It's falling apart. Therefore, in verse 18, through indolence the rafters sag, and through slackness the house leaks. King James says it this way, By much slothfulness the building decayeth, and through idleness of the hands, the house droppeth through. His roof is literally caving in around him. But you ask, it's a king. Doesn't he realize and see that his roof is leaking? No, he doesn't. Because his roof is fine. It's his moral house that is caving in while he has convinced himself everything's just fine. And the kingdom that he leads suffers because he's embraced this mantra, prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. 
There it is right there. The Bible says it. Money is the answer for everything. It must be true. But it's not true. This is because the fool is speaking from his heart. In the narrative, this is not God speaking. Money can't buy entrance into the kingdom of God. It can't fix everything. As Jesus said in Luke 18 um, to the rich young ruler, uh, though it might be able to hire someone to fix a leaky roof, which is kind of nice, money cannot prevent your moral house from caving in. Boy, it'd be, it'd be a little tough to live under a king like this, wouldn't it? Money is the answer to everything. And spoken by the ruler who has the power to determine your taxes. And money is the answer to everything. Boy, nothing in the Old Testament applies to anything we got going on today, is it? Psych. They still say that. Psych. Do you know what would be a lot better? A leader with integrity. One who's willing to rise each day and work for the benefit of everyone around him or her in the kingdom. In verse 17, Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. The king was to serve as a role model for the entire land. A lazy ruler makes for lazy people. Ministry, uh, we speak about it quite often. Don't expect people to do what you're not willing to do yourself. But for a king who is noble, that that term or the phrase there, sons, your your translation might say son of a nobleman, it suggests by birth, that one was born to be a leader. Boy, would anybody like a king like that? One who's a born to be a leader? Oh, who's that remind you of? Jesus. Both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Born of nobility. He gave himself for the goodness of his kingdom by offering himself to bear the sins of the many. Boy, is that good news or what? I like that kind of king. He and his cohorts, the good kings, sit down to feast at the proper time at the end of the day when the work is done. And they do so to regain strength to rise up again tomorrow and do it all over again. Boy, that's what we want to look like. So wisdom has taught us what to say, words of grace and edification, what not to say, dude, what direction is the city? The fool. And finally, in preparation for our close, when to say nothing at all. This could be the single most valuable piece of wisdom in Ecclesiastes right here. 
I do like the rendering of the English Standard Version for this one in verse 20. And the ESV translates it like this. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Do you remember at the beginning where we started and how we learned that the heart is the source of our thinking? What comes straight from the heart? It's part of the mind. It's part of the intellect. It's part of the thought process that comes out of the heart. In fact, the term that's translated bedchamber in the New American Standard can literally mean your mind. I don't know why uh, the NAS translators chose to render this bedchamber other than it probably is meant to imply uh, with our mind that we usually consider it the most private of places. Kind of like a bedchamber is a place where you feel that I can finally now open up. It's the place of perfect privacy like a bedroom. Even in the innermost privacy of your mind, don't curse. Don't curse. The question is, why? I mean, I'm asking. I kind of like to know. I have what I think is an acceptable explanation. I'm hoping someone in here could maybe come up with something a little better, but this is what I've got. This is my best shot. Having learned that the thoughts of the mind and the heart are, are virtually the same, how your heart thinks is what your mind thinks, same source. If you begin cursing privately in your heart, what is eventually going to occur? Even in your innermost privacy, Jesus suggests it's going to bear fruit. What you think is going to bear fruit, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, and the thoughts of your heart are going to eventually create their own exit. And you're going to say it. It's going to exit in the form of spoken words. And if cursing is what fills your heart, you eventually won't keep it to yourself. And once you say it, your words are going to sprout wings and they're going to flutter everywhere. It's going to be like Twitter. Once it's published, it's gone everywhere and you can't, can't put it back in again. How often have you said or thought to your heart, boy, I wish I hadn't said that. And once you say it, it's done. Wisdom would say, stop it. Stop it. Even before it fills your heart, fill your hearts and minds with something else. Something that is gracious. Let that come out of your heart. How much better it would be to always remain full of God's grace and then our words will always remain gracious.
Let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, we've sinned in many ways. We find it hard to stop. Yet, you have given us a spirit of regeneration. You've changed our hearts to to listen and to hear the good things of your word. And uh, we ask for your strength. We ask uh, for your wisdom to change us, that we would do better. Looking forward to that day that you remove every presence of sin from us. Father, we cry out as we look forward to the day that your son returns. But until then, help me, help us to live a life of grace that is extended to those around us, even when they don't deserve it. Thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.